Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Exact same club. Mm-hmm. It's the same launch condition. Produced a range of 11 yards of difference across those seven days. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Golf Unfiltered Podcast. I am your host, as always, Adam Fonsiga, Editor-in-Chief over at GolfUnfiltered.com. You can send me an email, adam at GolfUnfiltered.com. Follow me on Twitter, at GolfUnfiltered. We have a Facebook page, Instagram, and all that fun stuff. So we are continuing our discussion this month about the golf equipment review process. And we have a very special guest on the show tonight. Uh, we have the senior editor of equipment over at Golf Digest, Mr. Mike Statura. Mike, how are you today? Great, Adam. How are you? I'm doing really well, and I'm really happy to have you on the show. Uh, I've already spoken to a few people that do equipment reviews, and as our listeners know, I do a few reviews on uh, our site as well, but certainly not to the degree and for the audience volume as you do at Golf Digest. Uh, Mike, before we get into maybe a little intro about your background and and how you kind of got into the golf equipment review game, uh, how long have you been at Golf Digest, and maybe tell us a little bit about where you're from. Sure. Well, I started at Golf Digest in, in 1992, uh, which is almost before the internet, believe it or not. <laughs> and, uh, you know, even more amazingly, I got the job by answering an ad in, in the paper. So I, I think uh, the uh, uh, the idea that you, you can't uh, find your way to the New York Yankees without uh, knowing six people is it is not true. You, you, I, I was in a very fortunate position. Uh, they they needed somebody who was willing to do just about anything for nothing, and they hired me. And uh, so far, I, I haven't been asked to leave. Uh, so I, I take it that uh, uh, I'm doing at least one or two things correctly. But uh, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't I didn't come to Golf Digest to to really. Um, uh, start reviewing golf equipment but ironically uh at the time golf digest was looking for an equipment editor and they were looking to hire somebody with a phd in mechanical engineering uh and they were looking for people by advertising in the chronicle of higher education uh probably uh not realizing you know what a tenured PhD professor in mechanical engineering makes, um, <laughs> but not realizing as well that uh, uh, me, who was a uh, public relations guy for a, a little college in Virginia called Washington and Lee, uh, happened to see the ad and fired off a letter. And, and uh, you know, so I ended up starting at Golf Digest kind of at the lowest level and, and hanging around for a while and doing lots of different things, instruction writing and and uh, but because 
uh, equipment has always been a huge part of what Golf Digest does. There were a lot of opportunities in equipment writing, and uh, and I took advantage of those. And 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 really, uh, you know, almost after being at Golf Digest for a decade is when I became equipment editor, right around uh, uh, 2002. And it wasn't too long that thereafter that uh, you know Golf Digest. Uh, had been owned by the New York Times. They were acquired by uh, Condé Nast. And a lot of Condé Nast publications are uh, women's magazines and, and fashion magazines where the editors routinely reviewed products. And they wondered why Golf Digest wasn't reviewing equipment. Mm-hmm. And uh, their innocent question ultimately led uh, our editor, Jerry Tardy, to say, hey, let's let's think about this, whether we could do it. And uh, we've been basically thinking about it, uh, what became the hot list uh, ever since. Uh, it officially first appeared in the 2004 uh, February issue of Golf Digest. And, uh, uh, you know, it's it's changed. It's, it's kind of existed in various forms. It's a huge presence in our magazine now in the March issue, and it is an overwhelming presence on our website. And, you know, in, in the simplest terms, uh, I wouldn't say it's a 24 hour, seven days a week, 365 day a year, uh, proposition, but, but it is a process that's, you know, more than the March issue of golf digest. It's a, it's a, it's a minimum, of six months of, sort of concentrated effort that probably involves, uh, you know, from the magazine and external people, you know, probably 50 people to put the whole thing together. So it's, it's not an insignificant effort. Um, And it's, you know, and I I think it, it pays uh, dividends in, in that all that effort is rewarded with you know, it being a huge presence on our website and overwhelmingly popular uh, among our readers. And, you know, I won't say it's, it's a, um, you know, it's not a determining factor for any product success, uh, but I think it's really important to the industry to have, uh, you know, whether it's Golf Digest or Golf Magazine uh, or even other, other sites to, devote such a, a huge amount of their space to to equipment it you know it, it raises the conversation level about equipment it gets uh, golfers who are naturally inclined to talk about equipment talk about it even more and and I think uh, you know it goes hand in hand that golfers are always looking for uh, the next best thing and and uh, we hope that the hot list uh, it was founded with this idea that, hey, we're, we're your first step in the buying process. And that's that's really kind of our goal is if there's a lot of clutter out there, there's a lot of noise, let's give you some guidance so that when you walk into a, a shop or you could talk to your pro or you go see a fitter, mm-hmm. you have some baseline of information that helps sort of make the decision process comfortable at the beginning. You know, it's funny you say that it's it's a way to kind of clarify and, and get 
people pointed in the right direction with what equipment will work best for them. And I've got the uh, the hot list for 2016 up on my laptop right now. And you're absolutely right. It does take a a good chunk of the website, you know, and it's so detailed and it's, there's just every type of new golf club, or you even have a section for golf balls as well. And it's extremely informative. Um, but you're right. I, I think when you mentioned that, especially for beginner golfers, when they walk into a golf shop or a pro shop, they're just overwhelmed with all the different options and all the different, you know, especially these days, the adjustability options, which we'll get to here in a little bit for, for different clubs. But, Mike, you know, as far as the process that you go through, and I, I guess I wasn't aware that the whole equipment hot list, uh, the building of the hot list takes about six months, and you said there's 50 people that's involved. You know, how does that begin? You know, how does the whole hot list for the next year start off? Is there a, a first step in that process that begins the year prior? Uh, or, or kind of maybe walk me through how that, that whole thing gets started. Sure. It's, you know, it's a, uh, a process that, that I say starts six months. It may be even earlier because what I think starts the process is our, our meetings, our conversations with manufacturers, either reviewing the previous year's hot list or already talking about products for the, for the coming year. So, you know, the first sort of, you know, mile post in the, in the hot list is, you know, we go to manufacturers, send them uh, notification, hey, we're going to do the hot list again this year. Uh, please send us a list of products that you will be nominating, even if you have code names or you just want to say driver A or whatever. Uh, give us a list of the products, a brief description of what that product is, so that at that point it's, it's you know, May or June, and, and we're already talking about, your 2017 product, get us a list. We go over that list uh, internally with uh, the other editors on the hot list, uh, primarily Mike Johnson, who uh, is another senior editor and, and uh, really covers the tour end of things and is kind of my right-hand man when we meet with a lot of manufacturers. We're going over that list. We get back to the manufacturers and say, okay, uh, all of these products that you've submitted, uh, we would like you to actually submit physical products that we can evaluate mm. uh, in addition to that uh, submitting products and the deadline for submitting actual products is usually around the end of September. Uh, but there's some wiggle room for products that are sort of late arrivals. We, we do most of uh, most of the testing in October and early November. Uh, so there's some, wiggle room in there but we ask them not only to give us products to test but we provide them with the specifications of all of our uh, player panelists and we have uh, you know 16 to 25 players we have 16 main players that we bring in and we have you know six to ten local players usually that group is is only higher handicapped players that we bring in just to test super gamer group improvement irons uh mm -hmm. but so in, in addition to asking for physical products we're asking each manufacturer to provide technical documents uh about the specific technologies within each product 
any sort of internal testing that they do, uh, you know, videos demonstrating manufacturing processes, white papers that, uh, you know, I haven't counted the, the terabytes of data that, that <laughs> manufacturers provide to us, but literally manufacturers have created uh, websites just for the hot list that, that we use to evaluate products. And then, uh, you know, once all that information, once all those products have been uh, submitted to us, we then go offsite to a uh, uh, location for many years. We've been going to the Wigwam uh, outside of Phoenix, a uh, great resort that mm-hmm. basically opens its doors to us. And we do two weeks there where we're evaluating products uh, with, with the players. And then we have two advisory panels. We have a group of uh, six or seven retailers, uh, and we meet with them for two days, and, and we talk about the industry in general, companies in specific terms, uh, products that are on the in the marketplace and products that are scheduled to come to the marketplace. And then we have another panel of uh, PhD scientists and, and other uh technical experts that we meet with them for two or three days and literally go product by product talking about the specific technologies and what they've seen in, in the uh, documents that manufacturers have submitted. You know, and these guys are, are a pretty impressive group. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, George Springer is a uh, emeritus professor at Stanford who's basically uh, invented the science of composite technology and, and uh, Dick Ruggie is on our panel as well, former USGA technical director, former head of R&D at TaylorMade. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're an impressive group because they understand a lot about how things work. And that makes us knowledgeable about how golf things are supposed to work. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a pretty impressive part of our process, the, the uh, review of the technical presentations that manufacturers provide to us. Um, then after, after that two weeks in Arizona, we come back uh, to the uh, Northeast and, and we convene as a group of editors uh, and we have essentially the, the scoring system that you see in the magazine where we evaluate products based on four criteria. Uh, performance, Mm-hmm. And look, sound, and feel are two of uh, our key criteria that are fueled by the players. And those two categories are 45% of the total score for a product is coming from performance. Uh, 20% is coming from look, sound, and feel. And those two categories are really uh, based on what our players say. And I think an important element to the player part of this process is we have an editor paired with every two players throughout the entire evaluation process. Hmm. And, you know, we're literally with a laptop, uh, taking notes, getting players to provide scores, essentially interviewing them as they are hitting every product. You know, it's not like here's a bunch of clubs. Uh, we'll see you in four hours. You know, that's a, I would say the longest you go without talking to one of our players as an editor is maybe 
90 seconds. Oh, wow. And it's, it, it's, it's a, it's a pretty intensive process. It's, you know, seven plus hours on the range, uh, every day. And, and, you know, our, our panelists are really diligent, but it's, uh, I think the editorial input to this, uh, whole method is key because, you know, we're, we're not necessarily, uh, there to do anything other than interview these people. And I think that's our, that's our skill set, And we're asking them questions in a way that's not like, just tell me what happened. It's like, we're, we're seeing what's happening. If you're telling us something that's a little, doesn't match up with what we're seeing, we're, we're coming back at the player. And so it's, uh, it's a pretty regimented uh, part of our process. The same with our panels, you know, we're, we're, we're grilling the retailers and they inform us uh, on the demand criterion, which is only 5% of our score and, and, you know, certainly not a huge part of our total tabulation for a product score, but we are just as intense with that group of uh, retailers. And then innovation is 30% of our score, and that's uh, largely driven by the conversations with, uh, with the, the panel of scientists and and. Some of that is, of course, fueled by what manufacturers share with us, which is uh, way beyond what you're going to see in a press release or uh, a TV commercial. You so know, that, that's nope. the, the gist of it. And then, you know, like I said, we, we reconvene and the editors literally go category, you know, criterion by criterion, category by category, product by product, saying, okay, uh, where do we think this product ranks in innovation in fairway woods compared to the other products? And it's, you know, there are long conversations um, that are really about tenths of a point sometimes. And, you know, in, in terms of it may not even re be reflected in, in what you're seeing in the magazine that, you know, the same product uh, is going to be bold, let's say, in our process, but mm -hmm. we're still arguing intensely about those, uh, you know, whether product A should be ahead of product B in its innovation score, that type of thing. Um, and then once we make a decision, then <laughs> we've got our hot list together and we're actually producing it. And that's, you know, four or five people in the art department, a, a bunch of people on our website, and and uh, a lot of uh, writing and rewriting and photography and all that other stuff uh, goes to, to making it uh, presentable. And so a, a lot sure. of what you see, you know, there's a lot in the magazine, but there's a lot more behind the scenes. It's, it sounds like it. And, you know, I think what's uh, really interesting about what you just said among many of the interesting things you said was uh, the whole uh, perception of the tester. You know, once they go out, they hit it, they hit whatever club, they, they actually get to see how it performed for them. And then you actually have an interview with that tester. And, you, and, you're, and what you said is there's you don't go more than 90 seconds without talking to one of the editors. Um, one of the things that we've been talking a lot about on the site is this uh, concept of perception versus reality. And so, 
you know, I'm sure you know many of the different uh, club reviews or the methods that are done on blogs or other sites. You know, they spit out a lot of data. We at Golf Unfiltered, yep. we, we don't do a ton of data analysis, mainly because we don't have the resources available to us. Like, we don't have a track man, for example, but we do have a, a ball launch monitor that we can at least see the yardages. Um, but at the end of the day, wouldn't you say that it really just boils down to how that club performs for that individual player, and that about outrules any other piece of data that you could throw out? I mean, that's that's a really uh, crucial point. We've We've done a lot of robot testing over the years and you know i i value it i think it's important but at the end of the day we're trying to figure out which products uh are so significant that they consistently resonate with a group of real golfers and i think you know rightly or wrongly can you get the same answer from a robot uh, you get some answers from a robot, but I think sometimes those those numbers you get you get sideways pretty quickly. I, I remember one year uh, when we were doing robot testing, and and we have a control club that's part of the test, mm-hmm. and our our testing of drivers was conducted over over seven days with this and with the same control club not just the same model but the exact same club mm-hmm. at the same launch conditions produced a range of 11 yards of difference across those seven days wow <laughs> so, with, with robot you know, testing that did that with with a robot testing wow so uh you know the the data is so you can imagine the variability you can get uh, with humans and when you get that kind of you know it's not again you can factor it out and and, and uh, you know, sort of there are multiple ways to repeat the test to sort of verify the information that you're getting sure but I mean I've seen lots of robot testing I've seen lots of driver testing and you know, we do routinely a three-quarter inch toe hit three-quarter inch heel hit half inch up and down from the center mark and ball speeds are all around, you know, 97 to 98% of that center hit speed. You know, I would say there's no question that we've seen uh, real improvements in spin rates Mm -hmm. uh, over the last decade plus. Uh, But I don't think that's, you know, yes, that's, certainly meaningful i know the guys at my golf spy did a test recently comparing a you know a 2007 or 8 driver with the current model and and saw about 14 yards of difference Mm -hmm. and and i think that that that's fascinating but you know are there a lot of people who have eight year old 10 year old drivers in their bag that (laughs) are serious golfers probably not a lot um and I, i think you know given the nature of the hot list and it being an annual type of thing, what we're trying to get at is, okay, here's the collection of products that, that you're going to face when you uh, walk into a golf shop. What we've done is put that collection to a real world golfer experience uh, evaluation. And what we're reporting is, Hey, these products 
this group consistently mattered to this group of golfers consistently uh, was important to them or they were satisfied by them or you know it's one thing if you get a group of 16 golfers and and two of them say driver a yeah i think that was good enough to be you know maybe in my top five maybe fourth or fifth okay Mm -hmm. but if you got 14 of those players saying this driver it's it's one of the best it's got to be in my top two or three right down the line then you say okay well that's that something that we need to report that's not an accident and i think that's what we're you know in each of the criteria that's what we're looking for we're looking for our scientists to say hey you know what these three or four drivers what they're trying to do technologically that's meaningful that's important that's different uh they, they belong at, at the top of your list or uh if we got a group of retailers that say hey, you know these are the these are the six drivers that are, are, I know I'm going to be able to sell next year, or I have been able to sell. And uh, this company is, is uh, consistently uh, dealing well with consumers and, and has great customer relationships, uh, provides excellent customer service, those sorts of things. At, at the conclusion of what we do, we want people to be aware of products that are going to satisfy products that they can feel confident that I'm, I'm making the right decision if I include this in my consideration set. It, which makes complete sense. And, you know, I think one of the things that we talk a lot about here, at least on our site, is, you know, not only perception versus reality, but you have to really gauge from one day to the next, how this piece of equipment is not only going to perform for you, but how often you can repeat the performance over time, you know? And so I think one of the things that I hear, uh, or I've even thought this, I'll be honest with you, Mike. I mean, one of the things that I think of is when I see these club tests, especially when I see, um, you know, not to pick on the hot list at all, but the, the rating system has a lot of gold clubs, let's say, you know? And so as a consumer, the challenge for me then becomes, all right, well, you know, like the Nike Vaporfly Pro Iron is is rated gold, as is the Mizuno MP25. So the next step for me, though, as a consumer is to go out and actually try both of those clubs and try it repeatedly to really make a well-informed buying decision. Not necessarily what the website or, or what data is telling me, what I'm reading on paper or on a computer screen, but actually what I'm experiencing in real time when I've got this piece of equipment in my hands. I mean, that's that's ultimately the goal that that the reader has to follow through on. Yeah, I would say, um, and, and it's probably sacrilege to say this, but I really hope that somebody doesn't go to the hot list, uh, scan down for, okay, I'm only looking for gold and uh, five stars in performance, and then I'm going to go click to buy that thing. <laughs> right. Uh, I, know it, I know it happens, and I know people click to buy for even lesser reasons than the hot list. And, and I think, uh, you know, I was talking to somebody who knows a lot more about the business of golf than I ever will, a guy named Lee Bader. And and we were talking about, hey, you know, when's the last time you spent 900 or $1,000 on something that was just for you? Right. And we were like, 
man, I can't, not only can I not think about it like that, I can't even imagine justifying it. Right. So, so, so think how, how important this purchase is uh, for Golf Digest to say, and, and quite honestly, the hot list did for a time say, this is the only driver that you should buy. You know, we had a literal winner, editor's choice driver. Mm-hmm. And yes, you know, we have a process and it, it was very intense and, and, you know, hundred point scale, somebody, somebody won that, that little contest that we had. And we're going to say, because that driver uh, was three tenths of a point better in our scoring system, we're elevating that above all drivers. And we sat down and said, yeah, we have total confidence that that our system worked, and this is this is the driver that was uh, the winner of our process. But is this really helping the reader? Is he missing out on one really exceptional products that are you know just shy of that? I think that's that's what we were afraid of. That someone would just go to the editor's choice, go right to at the time, golfsmith.com or, or now, you know, uh, Golf Galaxy or PGA Tour Superstore or, mm-hmm. or uh, wherever and just click to buy. I don't think that's what we want uh, for golf clubs and for consumers, and that's why we've always stressed uh, fitting. Uh, I think getting back to your point about, boy, there's a lot of gold products, and and I can tell you this, that wasn't always the case because there, mm. there weren't a lot of uh, exceptional products. Uh, the fact is the differences in, in innovation, the differences in performance, they're, they're small and they're at such an elite level that uh, to, to say that somebody doesn't belong in the gold group or somebody uh, doesn't belong on the hot list at all um, just because uh, we think the numbers should be less just because it, it doesn't mm-hmm. look right. Right. You know, that, that's sort of backwards, right? You yeah. know, it's, it's not, it's not the, uh, the Olympic hundred meters, you know, <laughs> right. it's, it's you know, hey, all those guys are really good runners. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think that's that's what we're getting at. Are are, are we saying um, that it's more important that somebody wins our process, or or a smaller group wins our process, or are we saying, hey, you know, pay attention to to uh, Mizuno wedges. You know, they're not Vokey or they're they're not Cleveland. They're not getting all the attention of a Callaway. But you know what? They're doing some exceptional things. You know, put that on your radar. And, you know, does that mean that we have uh, seven gold wedges as opposed to three, which is what we had, you know, maybe 10 years ago? That's where we are, okay? The, the very best don't dominate anymore. Right. The best have, have maybe uh, 
laid out a path for, for others to to uh, come closer to them, and that's what they've done. It's uh, you know the innovation uh, process. I think is is really compelling now because when somebody's good, it doesn't intimidate a smaller company, a Cobra or somebody else. It inspires them, and and that's why you see those types of companies coming up with ideas that nobody's thought about before. I mean, you really see in, in putters, too. There are a lot of interesting ideas in putters. There's a lot of really good-looking putters that, uh, from companies that people haven't heard, heard from. I think that's part of, part of our mission at Golf Digest and the Hot List is to, you know, look under a few rocks and, and find some, some uh, you know, undiscovered gems and tell people, tell people about them. You know, it's interesting a lot in a lot of what you just said because it kind of leads to some of the the misperceptions or misconceptions that are held about these large scale equipment tests. You know, and one of them I'm sure you've probably heard a hundred times is you know, well, all the big names always end up at the top or in the gold list uh, or in a gold rating for the hot list or or any of these reviews. Uh, there's two ways to think about that. You know, one side, well, they're the big names for a reason, first and foremost. I mean, they're the ones that are going to do the best, to your point that you just rose earlier, uh, that they kind of inspire one another. But the other side of that, maybe the conspiracy theorists or the truthers, I'm using air quotes, <laughs> say that, you know, well, these these places get compensation, you know, to give them a better review than perhaps this club deserves. Now, uh, you know, obviously this is kind of a, I know which side of this, question you're gonna you're gonna sit on and I, I understand it to be the right side as well but what do you what is your response to that to that misconception I would say is it a misconception do you guys receive any sort of compensation to do a review on any of these companies uh, have you heard this before yeah there's no question you hear about it every year the hot list comes out you know well look who's advertising on the inside of the front cover uh that's got to be the company that did the best on the hot list or look who's on the back cover. They must have paid to, to get on the hot list. Mm-hmm. I can assure you the, the wall between the business side and the editorial side is uh, not only firmly in place, but I don't necessarily have a lot of friends on the business side uh, because quite frankly, the hot list over the, over the years, has cost Golf Digest millions mm. in lost advertising revenue. Uh, wow! Yeah, so it's 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 not a fact that a lot of people know about, but it is uh, it is routine for company a company or companies yearly to adjust, pull, whatever the word you want to use their advertising uh, schedule for the year sometimes because of the results in the hot list. And it's, it's, uh, uh, it's a credit to our magazine. It's a credit to Condi Nast. And it's especially a credit to Jerry Tardy to say, you know what, go about the process that you have in place. You know, we'll, we'll deal with whatever the fallout is, but the point is, to sort of be consistent in your in your methodology, and the fact is, 
everybody, every manufacturer who's uh, complained and pulled advertising is back uh, submitting product for the hot list, uh, back having conversations with us about their new products, about, you know, how they can improve based on where they were uh, a year ago to, to be part of the hot list. So I, I think, you know, certainly when the hot list initially appeared, uh, that was probably as ugly as, as, as it's ever been. Mm-hmm. But I would say, you know, at the PGA show last year, we had some very difficult conversations and it was not always about, um, you know, why were we not on the hot list or why were we silver instead of gold? It was literally, why were we four and a half stars instead of five? Oh, that, that trivialness of it. Well, yeah, but it is, you know, it's, 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 I guess, it's as trivial as losing the national championship game with one second to go. <laughs> you know? That's I mean, very true. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's, it's huge. Um, when anybody evaluates you, whatever you do, right. And, and mm-hmm. if you think you're doing great, if golf digest thinks, you know what, we're, the, we're not only the best golf publication in the world, we're one of the best magazines in the world. And when we compete for a national magazine award and we don't win, well, clearly there's something wrong with the judges. <laughs> it's, it can't be anything that we did. Fair point. And, you know, so it, it's, it's, it's not a, a pleasant experience to say, you know what? We thought brand A was a little weaker than brand B because it's not just that we're saying that you know, we're, we're going to say, okay, brand a, what questions do you have about the rating you received? And we have to be in a position to say, you know what? Yeah. I, I know you are really confident in what you did. And I know you have testing and data that says that you're better than anybody else, but here's our position on your innovation and where, you know, why we think it was exceptional but not the very best. So it's not a matter of sort of making that decision. You have to be able to to defend it. And, you know, let's use an example like a club head adjustability, right? right? We are, we are uh, in our evaluation of innovation, we think uh, adjustability is really important. We think the ability to uh, adjust a club in a, wide range is important in the sense that uh, it, it literally can fit differently for every kind of golfer. So if a company has some adjustability versus another company that has more, it, it, we're going to, we're going to make the argument, you know what? You did a lot of good things. They did all the good things that you did. And then they had a little bit more adjustability. So that's, that's kind of where we settled on the difference Mm -hmm. and they can disagree with our position that adjustability is, is uh, more important, let's say than moment of inertia. But if we're consistent in saying, Hey, we, we think adjustability is 
job number one and inertia is you know two or three on that list we have a we have a uh, a method or we have a philosophy or a standard right and they understand how we got there and i think you know over the uh decade plus that we've been doing it i think we've earned enough respect that the the conversations may be difficult but uh, i think they say oh all right I, i get where you're coming from i think you should think about it this way and you know maybe over time there's there's another way to look at things so it's kind of an ongoing conversation but i can tell you this from a from a a monetary standpoint how do you how do you win or how how does it make sense to say okay um brand a is gonna buy this many ads so we're gonna treat them better than brand B because they didn't buy any ads. Mm-hmm. Well, in in the from the business side's perspective, they want brand A and brand B to advertise as much as possible. So you you know playing favorites doesn't ultimately get you what the business side wants. And you know I'm I'm literally I have no idea what what advertising is in the magazine, the hot list issue, for instance, until I actually see the issue. And I can, uh, I can honestly say I, I, a lot of times I don't even look at golf digest because I've been, you know, by the time I get the issue, even though it's two or three weeks after we finished putting it together, I'm obviously working on the next issue. And, you know, the, the advertising end of things is not, uh, on my radar in any meaningful way. So I, I think it's, um, it, it's, it's an obvious conversation mm-hmm. topic among the the blogosphere, but it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And factually, we've lost advertising revenue because of the hot list in in terms of serious dollars. And and I think that's that's the ultimate reason. Uh, why I can defend our our position? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no question. Big companies do really well on the hot list. Uh, you know, I can I can point to a lot of small companies that have done well on the hot list, and I can point to a lot of companies that have done well on the hot list that don't advertise at all. It's it's man, there's just so much there that we could unpackage, and I'm sure we could have multiple uh, conversations about it. But you know, uh, Mike, one of the things that I'm sure you know. Uh, bloggers, as as you reference, um, when we do any reviews, um, and I'll just use myself as an example. Um, while I don't have any advertisers on the site, at least in terms of equipment advertisers, I've certainly ruined my fair share of relationships with any contacts I've had in the equipment indus- in industry based on a review that didn't go as favorable for them as perhaps they expected it to. You know, and I I understand that. I mean, I I know that they're they're taking a chance on some some blogger like me you know who they don't have no idea who he is and they're going to send him a product and and hopefully get a, a positive review out of it but you know in a lot of ways you kind of have to question at least on the blogosphere how biased are these reviews 
and you know how analytical or how scientific is the testing process so i guess mike in your opinion what are what is your opinion of blogs doing their own testing is it something that's good for the equipment review game or is it something that you think gets people in trouble when you look in the the viewpoint of the consumer who needs to make that purchase well, I mean, I, I look at it in in the same way that I look at movie reviews, which I know it might be trivializing it to something as you know grandiose as a as a new driver, but you know you trust uh, a movie review based on the source and the and the reviewer. Okay, so. You know, when A.O. Scott says something about a movie, boy, that, that's powerful because I know his reputation. I'm aware of what he's done. You know, is is a, a, a guy who doesn't really have a process for, for reviewing products, is his uh, review meaningful to me? Hey, maybe he's just starting out and, and he's trying to make a name for himself. I think that's important. I think there's another layer to this, though, that um, that manufacturers are getting better at uh, free publicity, for hmm. lack of a better phrase. So, you know, it's it's very easy for a manufacturer to get. Uh, together a group of sort of frequent commenters on on a equipment website and bring them into company headquarters for a full day of uh, seeing what Callaway is about or seeing what TaylorMade is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that sort of uh, taint the well a little bit? Um, or is that just smart business? You know, I, yeah. I think, you know, in, in one, on, on, on one hand, I think it's really important that we get a lot of people talking about equipment. I think that's uh, the exchange of ideas is how we sort of get to, um, you know, I don't want to use a word like truth, but it's, it's how we get to a certain consistency of, yeah, this, this product is no joke. Uh, at least that's my hope. Um, can we, can that sort of system be abused? I, there's no question in my mind that possibility exists. Uh, I don't think we're, I don't think there's a lot of necessarily fake news mm-hmm. out there in equipment right now, but, I would say there's uh, there are processes that for reviewing clubs that are not as thorough uh, as, as they could be, and uh, and there 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 are processes that that are thorough that I think get criticized for not being thorough enough, and I think everybody's looking for an easy answer in a in a field reviewing with uh, re- reviewing equipment, which is 
very difficult to make black and white distinctions. I think that's very well said. I, I 100% agree with you on that point, Mike. And, you know, I've, I've learned a ton from our conversation today, and I, I don't want to take too much of your time, but I would uh, definitely uh, let down some listeners if I didn't ask this question to the senior editor of equipment at Golf Digest, and it's in regard to the, to the Kirkland golf ball. I mean, real quick, this is probably, in my memory, the piece, one piece of equipment that has gotten the most buzz uh, more than anything I've seen over the last few years. Um, generally speaking, Mike, what, what is your overall opinion about the craze surrounding the Kirkland golf ball? And do you think there's anything behind it? Or is this just something that's going to maybe fizzle out in a few months? Uh, well, I mean, my understanding of the ball is that it is a four piece urethane covered golf ball. That's essentially the top type of construction of golf ball uh, currently existing. I can mm-hmm. tell you that there is a lot of uh, unused golf ball manufacturing capacity in Taiwan and Korea right now. Uh, I think it's likely that the Kirkland ball is made by a manufacturer of golf balls that is manufacturing other uh, balls by different names. Yeah, I've, I've heard uh, it's the, the Nassau, for example, you know, and you don't have to confirm or anything, but I've heard the Nassau Quattro is a name that's been thrown around. You know, that, that's, that's probably a fair guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Nassau Quattro may have several other names. I see. Okay. Okay. So, you know, there's, there's another way to look at the, the Kirkland ball. You know, let's say that it's made by one of these manufacturers in uh, Taiwan or Korea. And it's one of 15 similar balls that this manufacturer is producing. Mm-hmm. Are you getting the same sort of consistency? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, from a consumer perspective, uh, I can see the average guy saying two dozen for thirty dollars. What have I got to lose? Sure. Well, you know, and I'm a fifteen. What have I got to lose? Probably not much, um, but maybe you're just ensuring that you're never going to be anything other than a 15. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, because the the amount of effort that a, a major company like a uh, Kushnet slash Titleist puts into golf ball R&D and the golf ball manufacturing process, you know, I, I think you can say the same for Bridgestone. I think you can say the same for Callaway. Uh, there is a certain value to that. Now, what's happened with Kirkland is they've essentially called into question the value of, uh, for lack of a better word, the integrity of the process. Uh, is there a, a price that you want to pay for for that integrity? Uh, is there a possibility that there's uh, 
patent areas that are uh, either have slipped or there's uh, infringement mm-hmm. there. You know, the golf ball world is a mess, you know, from a patent standpoint. It's very, very difficult to uh, uh, essentially innovate in that space. So I think uh, I think it's fair to say that the, the technology in the Kirkland ball is probably not uh, as sophisticated as the technology in a Pro V1. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a stretch. I'd uh, agree with that. Yeah. Um, does that matter to the 15 handicap? Does that matter to the scratch player who is literally evaluating a golf ball based on the single ball that he has in his in his hand at that moment? You know, it may be a perfectly good golf ball and that that one ball. Uh, you know, I think the the problem is if Kirkland continues to be successful, and I'm not sure that they will be, but let's say that it's six months and it's still the talk of the town, um, it, it it puts pressure on companies that are charging twice and three times that much to, to say, well, how comfortable are we with... Uh, you know, the value proposition that we have on our integrity, you know, on our, on our, the value of our process. Um, you know, that certainly there are, there are costs to being uh, uh, tied with that Costco and Kirkland and NASA will never, ever have to worry about. <laughs> this, this is true. That, yeah. That, that as a consumer, maybe you don't care about, but, uh, um, as a, as a, uh, as a business, you know, I, I think Kirkland poses a serious threat if it, uh, uh, if consumers don't think that the value of Titleist or the value of Callaway or the value of Bridgestone is worth paying for anymore. I 100% agree with that, and I think that's something that we're going to have to to wait and see how it plays out. Um, certainly, we don't want to we we want to reduce the costs in some areas in golf to drive participation numbers up, but certainly you don't want to ever compromise quality uh, just for the sake of of doing so. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Mr. Mike Statura. Uh, senior editor of equipment over at Golf Digest. Mike, thank you so much for coming on uh, during this month. We're talking about golf equipment. I couldn't think of anyone better than yourself to uh, to welcome on the show. Thanks, Adam. I had a blast. Love to do it anytime.